We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures Warm and multiply in a drop of water. Back in 1938, Orson Welles made history when his radio drama War of the Worlds freaked a lot of people out. They thought there was an actual alien invasion. There wasn't, of course, but still. For me, March 12, 2020 felt like what I imagined that night in 1938 felt like for a lot of those freaked out people. As a reference point, that was the night Utah Jazz Center Rudy Gobert was diagnosed with coronavirus and within 12 hours, it had a domino effect on sports and culture. Within days, everything was pretty much cancelled, and it did feel kind of like the world was coming to an end. Which, when they stop sports, you know it's serious. There's all these great stories throughout history of athletes playing through pain in crazy situations. Michael Jordan's flu game, or that time they played the World Series right after an earthquake. Or take baseball player Ray Slim Caldwell, for instance. His generic, uninspiring nickname aside, this guy gave us one of baseball's most bizarre stories. More than a century ago, he was struck by a bolt of lightning during a baseball game and kept playing. And his wild story is next. Look, this whole quarantine and pandemic both suck. It's a scary time. And on top of that, people are losing work. That includes me. And while you don't necessarily have to make the most of a global pandemic, I will at least try to make my time of social distancing somewhat productive. They say during the Black Plague in the early 1600s, Shakespeare wrote King Lear, Macbeth, and Anthony and Cleopatra while he was quarantined. Fast forward to 2020, I made this podcast episode. So it's not really the same thing at all. But I do think podcasting is a great way to share stories, escape reality for a bit, or stay informed about what's going on. And if you're interested in starting your own podcast but need any help at all, then visit my website at smallleaguestude.com to see how Small League Productions can help you make a handcrafted podcast. Because if Shakespeare taught us anything at all, it's that storytelling is here to stay. I think. Anyway, on to this episode of Obscure Ball. It's titled, The Guy Called Slim. At 6'2 and 190 pounds, Ray Caldwell was often described as being lanky or slim. That's probably how he got his nickname, Slim. That and I feel like lots of men were called Slim back in the early 20th century because I don't think they had that many nicknames to go around. Anyway, Slim as they called him was born in 1888 in a little town called Corydon, Pennsylvania and grew up in nearby Salamanca, New York, a small town near the Pennsylvania-New York border. He would die there in 1967, but not before having one of the most wild rides in the history of Major League Baseball. If any event best sums up his life and time in the Major Leagues, it was a Sunday afternoon game on August 24, 1919. The world was roughly a year removed from a very deadly pandemic, the Spanish influenza outbreak of 1918, which actually might have started in Kansas, but that's neither here nor there. 
Historians estimate somewhere between 17 and 50 million people died worldwide. I don't know how you have that large of a margin, but anyway. Plus, they just had the First World War. So that was pretty disruptive, too. With all of that in mind, it's easy to imagine that Americans were happy to have things relatively back to normal. And a baseball game between the Philadelphia Athletics and Cleveland Indians seems like a pretty normal slice of life to me. But the day turned out to be one of the most bizarre in the history of baseball. In fact, I'm going to champion the idea that it's one of the strangest things that's ever happened to any person who's ever lived. Which might seem like a weird thing to say, but whatever. Now, on paper, the game should have been an easy win for Cleveland. At 63-46, and 46, they were second place in the American League, trailing the Chicago White Sox, while the A's were pretty awful, entering the day at 28-79, and 79, which was last in the league and part of their historically bad season. They'd go on to finish the year at 36-104. and 104. So yeah, Cleveland was easily the better team. And a fun little fact here, Philadelphia was managed by the legendary Connie Mack. Though his team wasn't especially good that year, he managed them for 50 seasons, racking up more wins than any manager in the history of the game, and more losses as well. Not sure where I'm going with that, but it just seemed like a cool little bit of information to drop in there. Anyway, back to the game. It was a Sunday afternoon with not exactly great weather. According to first-hand accounts, dark clouds kind of loomed over the stadium that day at League Park in Cleveland, but they went ahead and started the game anyway which in retrospect, wasn't very smart. But it did give us one of baseball's most bizarre episodes. So you take the good with the bad. The starting pitcher for the Indians that day was a mid-season acquisition. A talented spitballer named, wait for it, Ray Caldwell. You probably knew that was coming. Anyway, a spitball, by the way, is when the pitcher uses some kind of substance like spit or even Vaseline to alter the trajectory of the ball. You probably knew that part already, but I wanted to explain it anyway, so sorry if that's old hat. The pitch was actually banned after a lot of objections from managers, but the final straw, ironically, was when Caldwell's teammate and fellow Raymond, Ray Chapman, was killed after being hit in the head with a spitball in 1920. But that's a whole other story, and perhaps a future episode. But Caldwell... Now this fellow was a gifted right-handed pitcher, but he'd been released by the Boston Red Sox about a month earlier. He'd come off a series of not-so-great seasons hampered by injuries and a well-chronicled self-destructive streak that many observers think actually held his career back. Quick note about that and the culture of baseball at the time, the players of that era were a pretty rowdy bunch. You may recall in the first ever episode of Obscure Ball, I pointed out that in the early part of the 20th century, the league was trying pretty hard to clean up the image of the game, thanks to players' inclination to drink and fight and gamble and what have you. Those efforts for the most part had failed, and Caldwell was a particularly pervasive example of this failure, as he became one of the game's most prolific alcoholics, a fact team management was happy to overlook as long as he pitched well. As a rookie, Slim had a pretty solid start to his career in 1910 with the Yankees, though they were actually called the Highlanders at the time, something I learned during the research of this podcast. In six games, two of which were starts, Caldwell picked up his first career win along with his first save. So going into 1911, he seemed like a promising prospect for the Yankees or I guess the Highlanders. And he was. He picked up 14 wins that year 
posted an ERA of 335 and struck out 145 batters. He also handled the bat pretty well for a pitcher. As a left-hander, he had a career average of 243 with eight home runs, including four in 1915 when he homered in three consecutive games, something no other pitcher has ever done. He'd also steal 23 bases in his 12 major league seasons. Again, not something pitchers typically do. Good play aside, 1911 was the season where you could say things began going sideways for Slim. A midseason injury triggered a drinking habit that would be a problem for him his whole career. As legendary sports writer Grant Land Rice once put it, Caldwell could be as great as Matty, Christy Mathewson, or Walter Johnson, but instead of choosing their careers, he is evidently going to be another Rube Waddell. There's probably no need to explain who all those people are because I think you get the point. Slim would go out on these drinking and philandering binges, miss team meetings, would get fined by the managers, usually didn't pay those fines, then get suspended, would repent of his worldly ways, go back to being a stud pitcher, and then repeat the cycle. Likewise, 1912 was a pretty disastrous season. While he was the opening day pitcher for New York against his future team, when the Red Sox christened the brand new Fenway Park, he'd go on to lose 16 games that season, posting an ERA of above 4, while New York went a dismal 50 and 102. But things did begin to turn around for him in 1913. And by 1914, Caldwell was basically unhittable. He won 18 games that season, posted his best ever ERA of 194, and New York improved to 70 and 94. However, that's also when tensions came to a head between Caldwell and manager Frank Chance. Despite playing so well, Slim was still pretty much a raging alcoholic and was still missing team meetings and all that good stuff. So he racked up a pretty hefty series of fines from Chance. Caldwell, probably not wanting to pay the fines and apparently aware of his ace status with the team, leveraged himself by signing a contract with the Buffalo Bison of the short-lived Federal League at the end of 1914. Then he appealed his fines from the season to Yankee ownership. The Yankees, afraid their star pitcher would actually jump ship, sided with Caldwell and overruled Chance's fines. As a result, the legendary manager resigned from the team. Way to go, Slim. In his place, the Yankees decided to hire a fellow named Wild Bill Donovan, who was not in fact an Old West outlaw as his name might suggest. Rather, he was a more easygoing manager. Unlike Chance, who had a reputation for being a bit of a stickler. Hence, all the fines. Wild Bill himself had once been a star pitcher, and Yankee ownership figured that if anyone could get the best out of Caldwell, it would be Donovan. Which actually worked out until it didn't. Case in point, the entire 1916 and 17 seasons. Coming off a solid 1915 season, 16 actually seemed okay on the surface. Again, his ERA was under 3, and even though the team as a whole struggled to provide any real run support for him, and his record was a dismal 5-12, the Yankees as a whole finished 80-74. That's nothing to sneeze at. It was good enough for first in their division and fourth place in the American League, and for most of the season, New York found themselves in position to possibly win the pennant. But Caldwell was really starting to unravel at this point. The star pitcher would get hammered after each loss, often not showing up for days at a time afterwards. In fact, the media began to speculate on his whereabouts. It's worth mentioning, to this point, it felt like the media was largely trying to sanitize his off-the-field charades. 
For example, in 1914, the Sporting News stated that he indulged in an occasional flirtation with that which is amber and foamy, which is a polite way of saying this dude's got a drinking problem. But on September 21, 1916, that same paper openly speculated that he was in rehab. He wasn't, by the way. He was just away from the team, apparently perusing the town for booze and women. When he didn't show back up for the rest of the season, rumors began to circulate that he was pitching in Panama, under the alias of Collins. The underlying proof was that there was a right-handed pitcher who pitched well and kinda sorta looked like Slim, throwing for a team in Panama. Also known in the state psalm that winter, so I guess it's a plausible theory. Wherever he was, he eventually re-emerged about a week late to spring training in 1917, and he was reportedly tan and out of shape. Despite a few harsh words from management and team ownership, Slim was pretty much just welcomed back into the fold. I guess they were on like a 500 strikes and you're out kind of policy. Also, I think that really speaks to just how good he was. I mean, this guy ditched his team during a pennant race a season ago. And aside from basically a slap on the wrist, he got back to business as usual, which meant pitching pretty well. He posted a losing record of 13 and 16, but once again, his ERA was under three. The Yankees, however, played really poorly, finishing nine games under 500, and Slim as a result was completely off the rails if he wasn't before. He got suspended midway through the season when he missed curfew, reportedly spending the night out drinking with one of his new teammates. But then in typical Ray Caldwell fashion, his first game back from suspension was a wild one. He pitched nine and two-thirds innings of relief to get the win against the St. Louis Browns. He celebrated the win by hitting the town and stealing a ring from someone the papers identified as Lucy Dick. I guess that's a real name. Though he was released from jail after returning the ring, the Yankees were just kind of over it at this point. They tried trading him to the Browns the very next day because they were literally already in the city and that seemed simple enough. St. Louis was wise enough to pass and the Yankees were stuck with Slim. Then to make matters even worse, his wife sued him for abandonment, seeking child support for their seven-year-old son. And then on top of that, the injuries just kept piling up. Those injuries included bad knees and a bum arm. And by 1918, New manager Miller Huggins, because Wild Bill Donovan was fired after the 17th season, considered using him as an outfielder and pinch hitter, since he could still wield the bat pretty well. But here's the really weird part. He also assigned private detectives to try and keep him out of trouble, mainly to prevent him from going to bars and meeting loose women. <laughs> I picture these old-timey noir-type detectives with trench coats and top hats, surveilling him as he met up for rendezvous with various women around New York. But whatever they were actually doing didn't really work out, as he was still able to fake them out and get drunk on a regular basis. I don't know if that means Slim was just really crafty, or these guys were just bad at being detectives. Either way, the 1918 season was Slim's last with New York. The outbreak of the First World War shortened the season, and he finished 9-8 with an ERA of 306 so he wasn't just used as a pinch hitter, after all. He actually took a job with a shipping company to avoid the draft, since that was considered an essential industry to the war effort. To further sweeten the deal, he figured he could play ball for the company team and not have to work the assembly line. It was a pretty good plan, aside from the fact that the team never gave him permission to leave. He didn't care. He left anyway. And that was the final straw. 
He was traded during the offseason to the Red Sox for Duffy Lewis and Ernie Shore. He lasted less than one season in Boston before being released in July of 1919. So when Cleveland signed him soon after that, Sloan was at a point in his career where his best and most interesting playing days should have been behind him. Burnout, hurt, and with all of his bridges burned, it seemed odd that any team would even bother to sign him. But Cleveland did, and manager Tris Speaker decided to put a clause in his contract that stipulated he must get drunk after each game that he pitches. You heard that right. He wasn't just encouraged to drink, he was implored to. After a night of drinking, he was ordered to stay away from the ballpark and the team altogether, you know, just sleep it off. The day after that, he was to report to Speaker and run as many laps as the manager told him to. The next day, he would throw batting practice, and the day after that, he'd be the starting pitcher. How Speaker stumbled upon this winning formula is a mystery, but it worked. In six starts for Cleveland, Slim went 5-1 with a 1-7-1 ERA. And that brings us to the whole point of this episode, that game on August 24th. I guess that wasn't a quick note after all. Consider it an extended character profile, or whatever you want to call it. But back to the game that day. Ray was actually making his debut for the Indians, and like I was saying, the storm clouds didn't stop the game from starting, nor did the rain during the game. They played on, with Cleveland scoring the first two runs of the game in the fourth. The A's answered with a run in the fifth, and the game would remain 2-1 going into the ninth. For his part, Caldwell was wheeling and dealing, allowing just one run on four hits. And I should probably point out that the opposing pitcher, Raleigh Naylor, also pitched eight innings, allowing just two runs. But he did not, and I cannot emphasize this part enough, get struck by lightning. That distinction belongs solely to Slim. Now, according to science, the odds of someone being struck by lightning are about 1 in 700,000. Though if you are struck, you've got like a 90% chance of surviving. That brings us to the top of the ninth inning. There's two outs, and Ray needs just one more out to clinch a victory and a complete game. Standing in his way is a guy named Cy Perkins. But then lightning bolts begin flashing above the stadium. Eyewitnesses said that lightning struck a steel rod and then skipped across the field, somehow hitting Ray. I mean, I really don't know how lightning works. But I feel like I can say this pretty confidently. It probably hurts, and if you're struck by lightning while doing something, you need to stop doing that thing and seek medical attention. Lightning strike survivors have described the pain from being punched to feeling like your insides are on fire. I'm not quite sure where Slim falls on that spectrum, but he did pass out. Then after coming to several minutes later, he insisted that he keep playing, much to the astonishment of the terrified onlookers. I kind of picture it being like something from Looney Tunes, where he's, you know, fried, maybe you see a skeleton for a brief second and his hair standing up. I doubt any of those things actually happened, but he did stay in the game to face Perkins, forcing a ground out to shortstop to end the game. Oh yeah, and as if surviving a lightning strike and still playing baseball weren't enough, Ray threw a no-hitter against his old teammates less than a month later when the Indians beat the Yankees 3-0 on September 10th. A year later, Cleveland won the 1920 World Series when they defeated the Brooklyn Robins five games to two. And yeah, I was pretty surprised to learn that the World Series apparently used to be a best of nine games. Slim got the nod in game three, though he only recorded one out. 
After allowing two runs in the top of the first, Speaker took him out, and the Indians would only score one more run with Ray taking the loss. That said, they still won the series, and Slim was a World Series champion. 1921 would be his final season, and it wasn't a particularly great one. He pitched mostly out of the bullpen, finishing with a 490 ERA. He was only 33 when he retired, and in retirement he'd work a number of odd jobs. He ran a farm, worked at a train station, was a bartender for a while, and was married four times during his life. Also divorced four times. So this would usually be the part where I try to bring everything full circle and ostensibly make some kind of point. I don't think I can really do that for this episode. To me, it's just one of those crazy things that happens, and I don't know what else to say about it. So anyway, feel free to subscribe if you like this episode. And most importantly, please stay safe, healthy, and stay home until this pandemic ends. I don't think the world will end if we just cooperate with the experts and scientists. Okay, that's it for now.